Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in and know that you are welcome. I'm your host, Lawrence Santoro, and this is The Nook, and this is Tales to Terrify, and a show we have for you tonight. Yes, we all survived both Canada Day and the 4th of July, fingers and eyeballs intact. We did, did we not? Good. Now, all we have to do is survive the next 60 days, and we'll be on the edge of fall. But let's not even think about that. Tonight, the nook is cool, it's dark and quiet. A black cat prowls the periphery of the gathering, as befits a place where stories such as these are whispered round the pretzel bowl. Well, what will be whispered forth this evening? Yes, you know. We have the conclusion of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, that will be after we say our usual, typical few words, the ones with which I ask you to make a contribution or make a commitment by subscribing to the tune of a few dollars every month. That helps support Tales to Terrify and the other neighborhoods of the District of Wonders. I'll tell you that to do so, you just go to our homepage, com, and click on the Support the Show button of your choice. And now that I've done that, I might also suggest that you stop by the iTunes podcast arena and give us a glowing recommendation. If you believe truly that we glow, and I've now done that, and now we are in the fiction portion of the evening. Tonight, tonight, 
We'll have a touch of post-Fourth of July fireworks with a few pieces of short fiction from Mr. T. Fox Dunham. These two stories, Mr. Bird Whistling in the Night and The Good Dr. Sullivan, are, as Humpty Dumpty might have told Alice, good portmanteau tales. They do many things. They carry many weights. They are short, they are disturbing, and they are damn near poetry. T. Fox Dunham has published nearly 200 short stories and articles in the last two years. You'll find him in multiple anthologies and periodicals of all genres, both online and in print. We'll put his contact information on the Tales to Terrify homepage. You know where that is. His first novel, The Street Martyr, will be released this fall. His next novel, The Tangible Illusion of Reality, or Searching for Andy Kaufman, is in the works and slated to be published by Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing. When you hear his work, with Fox narrating, I think you'll understand why he describes himself as a modern and a mad bard, a shaman who heals by listening and through the use of art and stories. His totem animal, by the way, is not surprising. It's the fox. He survived a very rare cell type of blood cancer after an intense year of chemotherapy and six months of radiation at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And as he does tonight, he often writes of his battle with cancer and of those friends he lost. In addition to writing, T. Fox Dunham plays Dungeons and Dragons with his friends at Royal Comics in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. And when the sunshine warms, he's out on lakes and in streams, bass fishing with his cherry rod. Here, introduced and read by the author, are two short pieces by Mr. T. Fox Dunham. Mr. Bird, Whistling in the Night, by T. Fox Dunham, read by that wild bard, T. Fox Dunham. In my cell at night, Mr. Bird whistles at the dark. The Odin you would want his word waits for it. It lives in the ever midnight world above the Arctic Circle where people are thrown away, forgotten. Mr. Bird gazes into its heart and the darkness gazes into Mr. Bird. The jury never takes into account the special teeth-breaking rage only a woman can invoke in a man. I try to convince that pimply, wet-behind-the-ears public defender to put in the defense of not guilty by mental defect. I wasn't in my right hand. I felt like I was floating when I tore a club from the stair balusters, breaking my hand in the process, and cracked my brothers in Jenny's skull. I whistled while I killed them, I never could whistle before. Couldn't get my lips shaped right. I couldn't whistle after. That's how I knew. I tried to tell the judge that I'd been possessed by something, taken over by an old spirit of the land that speared the bottom of my boots with roots, then into my feet, infecting me to my core. Man had drilled into its heart at Alaska lands without respect, sucking out the crude. 
The land demanded blood in return, the mangled elk face, fur-rotting eyes dripping pus, maggots chewing on its carcass. It raised my hand like a puppeteer and guided the club, pulping their heads. Then it left me, returned to the violated earth. I wept. I sobbed for my wife, my brother, and I sobbed because it had abandoned me. I'd been left with no family, left with no God. Feel it watching me, Mr. Bird said. Then he'd resume whistling a song low in pitch. He just stared out our cell portal and whistled. I never saw him sleep. Mr. Bird's almost perfectly square head looked like his mother and father had chopped him out of firewood. He tattooed himself on his right cheek with an improvised needle from a sewing kit and ink drained from pens. A crimson eagle, thick in lines, warped in shape and blossoming eyes, many. This was a common symbol of his native Eak tribe, I assumed, as I never could get more than a few sentences out of my cellmate at Cold Creek Correctional Facility, north of Fairbanks. He just spent the melting glacier time staring through the portal, out under the prison yard, and further to the mountains, watching something with raptor eyes. Some of the prisoners fermented a liquor from potato skins traded from the cooks. They called this toilet wine sunshine. Popular during the winter months when the sun abandoned those of us living above the Arctic Circle, the lost month when we lingered in forever night. A man gets bored enough to start boring holes into his own skull, so I traded some porn magazines for a coffee can full of sunshine wine and shared it with my taciturn cellmate. After ten gulps, enough to kill a man, Mr. Bird ceased his whistling and turned from his important business outside the cell window. He looked me over and cracked a grin on his block face. It's clawed a hole in you, Mr. Bird said. I wish you'd testified for me. He spoke through cracked teeth, darker than dark, blacker than night. Watch with me from the hill, and I watch it. I took the can off him, gulped down to my eyes caught fire. It wears the dark like elk fur, Mr. Bird continued, like black feathers. Got to look sharp for it. Where it sits, the night looks deeper, a hole in the dark that swallows a man. I'd never encountered what he described growing up in Anchorage, keeping to the streetlights, car headlights, always having a flashlight close at hand. Light banished the night. Humans had a fear of the dark in our folk memory. Something lived in the night, wore it like a cloak, camouflage. We all knew it but would never admit that anything dwelled outside our domain. One night it came and sucked up my mother and father, Mr. Bird said, turning back to his cycle of gazing through the portal. They stuck you in this hole for murdering them. The moonshine's effect dwindled, not lasting against Mr. Bird's constitution. Still I had a story, so it made life in our shared cell a bit easier. On the first night of those winter months when we stumbled in a constant light like children forgotten by a neglectful mother. Mr. Bird started to sway like a pendulum, gripping the window frame with white knuckles. Black River, he said. I looked from the side of him to the yard. At first, I only saw the yard and fence outlined in the sickly tower lights. Then I followed Mr. Bird's eyes. In the voids missed by the sallow lamps, an ebony stream finer than the surrounding darkness, oozed down from the hills, so close now, licking at the cinder blocks of our cell wall. The darkness looked into me, growing ice crystals in my chest. 
I crawled into my bunk like a scared child, shaking so hard I bit my tongue. Help me, Mr. Bird said. He reached for me, but couldn't pull his right hand from the window. Take him, I whispered. Take him and let me be. Athotic tendrils poured through the plexiglass, wove around the bars, and tangled Mr. Bird's fingers. Heels sucked the color from his husk, etoliating him into monochromatic outline. I heard him exhale hard, letting out the remainder of his hot breath before he drained entirely into the oily stream. I kept my eyes averted from windows until day returned to our year. The warden didn't raise much of a fuss and mocked him as missing, but he didn't bother looking for him. The warden knew. I got a new cellmate a few days later, some punk who robbed the liquor store and unloaded buckshot into the cashier because the liquor store was out of Kentucky whiskey. The kid shaved his head in the sink to look mean so no one would mess with him. He tossed around in his bunk that first night, going mad from the noise. You better stop that whistling, the punk said. I'll cut your heart out. That ain't me. That's Mr. Bird. You'll get used to it after a time. The Good Dr. Sullivan by T. Fox Dunham Read by that mad bard, T. Fox Dunham Right this way, patient R. J. Cardinal. Follow me now, toot sweet, as they say on the continent. He pointed his long finger into the air, beckoning me to follow by wiggling its three joints like a gray-skinned belly dancer gyrating, calling me forward to the linear accelerator room for my daily radiation dosage. Nurse Wolf usually gets me, I said. The wolf attends to other duties in brighter worlds, he said. I couldn't quite get a look at him in the shadow of the corridor. The halogen lights in the ceiling of the oncology radiation department at Penn blinked, winked, and fizzled. Two of the plastic grates had fallen open, and it swung in the dark. Don't look behind, he ordered. His cool voice drove cold iron nails into my diaphragm. Never turn your head to the past. I kept my eyes ahead, focused on his trailing white coat. A rip slipped down his left shoulder. I felt the dread of leaving something behind, almost like when I was a child and I left my stuffed fox on the ferry seat after crossing the harbor. In anxious habit, I scratched at the masses down my neck, still not declining, shrinking, dying. They swelled as the disease devoured me, and I grew lesser. He led me to the ice cave of the linear accelerator. The glass to the operator booth cracked and fogged, a tempest spinning in the opposite world. Undress entirely, he ordered, waving his triple-jointed finger. I'd never had to before. I slipped off my t-shirt and black jogging pants to my boxers. My weight had diminished to below seventy pounds, and I stood before him not ashamed of my nakedness. A good wind could have blown me away like a cake of ash dropped from a burning cigarette. Where's the usual gang? Have no concern for them, he whispered, for they no longer have any concern for you. They granted you a passing thought. How nice, how kind. The flower wreaths will be lovely, I'm sure. Just who are you? No one special. Dr. Sullivan, the good Dr. Sullivan. 
You have not heard of me, but you know me, I'm sure. I work at this hospital. I labor at so many hospitals. Now, onto the table. Toot sweet. Pronto. I climbed onto the stainless steel table. It had been raised at least two feet higher, and I pulled myself onto the stretcher. The metal froze my flesh, and my body shattered into shaking fits. My teeth tapped, jaw in spasm. It's so bloody cold, I said. I still couldn't see his face, concealed by pockets of shadows scattered in webs about the linear accelerator room. Still, I sensed he nodded. He reached into his lab coat pocket and rolled something in his palm and elongated fingers. He towered over me, tall as a scarecrow, nailed to a pole. Dr. Helsinki said we were DEFCON too, I said. There had been no significant reduction of the tumors according to the last three scans. I had so much trouble breathing this morning, like I'd swallowed a cat. It clawed in my lungs and my throat. The good Dr. Sullivan pulled a length of scotch tape from a roll and pressed it to my forehead, taping me to the table. Then he left the room and fetched my wax block from the locker in the hall. He returned carrying my inverted tongue. I'd made it when I first started treatment. They had me bite down a length of hot wax to forge a perfect fit to my mouth. He fixed the plastic tongue to an arm over my head and tightened the vise. I felt so tired, I said. I thought while waiting this morning I'd, I'd close my eyes and have a nap. It felt so good to really deep sleep again. Shh, now, he said, pressing his triple-jointed finger to my lips. He drove the wax tongue into my mouth, smacking my jaw and teeth. It gagged my throat, and I struggled against the petrified snake that filled my mouth, choking me. He tightened the screws. Calm yourself, silly bird, he whispered just at my ear. His breath whipped my ear like a frosty gale. It's all so good for you, he cackled. He strapped my arms to the table to hold my body still. My body raged in chills. I relaxed. I'd endured so much treatment, bone marrow extractions, months of chemo, losing my hair. I missed my blonde curls. So young, the good doctor said, rich in flavor. He pulled the long arm of the linear accelerator above me. Its flat, black face pierced my skin with red lasers focusing on those black tattoos scattered on my face, neck, shoulders, and chest. The black dots bit and nibbled at my skin, swollen ticks drinking my blood. Once the linear accelerator had been aligned, normally the technician left for the safety of the control room. The good Dr. Sullivan remained. He fastened black goggles, sealed in leather to his eyes. Comfortable? He guided the face of the machine over my face, breaking from the usual pattern. I couldn't warn him of his mistake. I struggled against the restraints. Just the two dosages today, he said. Then I have such wonderful news for you, patient R.J. Cardinal. No more treatments. I will cure the terrible disease you all suffer. I jerked my head and shifted my torso. I kicked my legs against the table. Say, fromage. He operated the external controls. The machine ignited and sang. It buzzed. The metallic cloud of ozone poured down my nose, churning my stomach. My right eye burned and smoked. He adjusted the machine and fired again, pouring molten wax down on my left eye. My vision dimmed. Then it switched off. Darkness flooded my mind. In my pockets they go, he said. I can't see the light. You are cured of the disease of life, said the good Dr. Sullivan.
and thank you for that fox. I look forward to more from you. And now, for the evening's long fiction event. Last week, we began a two-part reading of Algernon Blackwood's novella, The Willows. We'll have some general information about the story and its author at the end of the reading. But first, previously, on The Willows. It is 1907 or so. Our unnamed narrator and his companion, known to us only as the Swede, are canoeing the Danube River. Crossing into Hungary, they enter a place shown on their maps as a pale blue amorphous area marked only as Sumpfa, or marshes. Unlike the beautiful blue Danube, this portion of the river is mile upon mile of shifting channels, low flat islands which appear and fall with the height and stage of the river. Now an almost permanent wind blows, draining our voyageurs of strength and spirit. They've taken refuge on an island, covered in low, slender willows, willows that do not, as our narrator tells us, attain to the dignity of trees, but are just tall, slender bushes that whisper and move, probably with the wind. At first, our travelers have no fears about the place or their safety. Their camp is comfortable, and even if finding wood for their fire is difficult, and even if the river is rising, they're only there for the night, yes? And then, the Swede cries in alert. Gathering firewood, he's seen what he believes to be a man's body rushing by in the rain-swollen river. As the travelers look, however... The dark thing in the water rolls over, looks at them with large yellow eyes, and, ah, it's only an otter. Soon a flatboat rushes by. On it, a man looks at the island and at our travelers. He waves as if trying to attract their attention, to warn them. Then he crosses himself as though offering prayers for his or their safe passage. Later, our narrator rises in the night, and he watches the willows bend in the wind, or maybe they bend against the wind. And then, then he sees something. To quote him, they first became properly visible, these huge figures just within the tops of the bushes, immense, bronze-colored, moving, and wholly independent of the swaying of the branches. I saw them plainly, and noted, now I came to examine them more calmly, that they were very much larger than human, and indeed that something in their appearance proclaimed them to be not human at all. Certainly they were not merely the moving tracery of the branches against the moonlight. They shifted independently. They rose upwards in a continuous stream from earth to sky, vanishing utterly as soon as they reached the dark of the sky. 
They were interlaced one with another, making a great column, and I saw their limbs and huge bodies melting in and out of each other, forming this serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees. They were nude, fluid shapes passing up the bushes within their leaves almost, rising up in a living column to the heavens— their faces I never could see. Unceasingly they poured upwards, swaying in great bending curves with a hue of dull bronze upon their skins. Well, that's not the last of the strangenesses that beset our travelers. Strange perceptions, strange fears. That otter, was it a man before it was an animal? The man in the boat who crossed himself, what did he think he saw when he looked at them? And was it a man? They find strange hollows now in the ground, odd funnel-shaped depressions. And then, as the island continues to shrink, as the river rises, they find that they are trapped their steering paddle is gone, the other paddle damaged. The canoe itself is found to have its bottom torn open. As they make repairs, they discuss the strange happenings that are gathering around them. And finally, our narrator has had enough, enough of the Swede's conjectures. Look here now, he cries. This place, it's queer enough, without going out of our way to imagine things. The boat was an ordinary boat, and the man in it was an ordinary man. "'and they were both going downstream as fast as they could lick. "'And that otter was an otter. "'So don't let's play the fool about it.' "'Now we'll reprise the tail end of part one "'and then press onward with part two "'of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows.' But you're quite right about one thing, he added before the subject passed, and that is we're wiser not to talk about it or even to think about it, because what one thinks finds expression in words and what one says happens. That afternoon, while the canoe dried and hardened, we spent trying to fish, testing the leak, collecting woods, and watching the enormous flood of rising water. Masses of driftwood swept near our shores sometimes, and we fished for them with long willow branches. The island grew perceptibly smaller as the banks were torn away with great gulps and splashes. The weather kept brilliantly fine till about four o'clock, and then for the first time in three days the wind showed signs of abating. Clouds began to gather in the southwest, spreading thence slowly over the sky. The lessening of the wind came as a great relief, for the incessant roaring, banging, and thundering had irritated our nerves, 
Yet the silence that came about five o'clock with its sudden cessation was in a manner quite as oppressive. The booming of the river had everything in its own way then. It filled the air with deep murmurs, more musical than the wind noises, but infinitely more monotonous. The wind held many notes, rising, falling, always beating out some sort of general elemental tune, whereas the river's song lay between three notes at most, dull petal notes that held a lugubrious quality foreign to the wind, and somehow seemed to me in my then nervous state to sound wonderfully well the music of doom. It was extraordinary, too, how the withdrawal suddenly of bright sunlight took everything out of the landscape that made for cheerfulness, and since this particular landscape had already managed to convey the suggestion of something sinister, the change, of course, was all the more unwelcome and noticeable. For me, I know, the darkening outlook became distinctly more alarming, and I found myself more than once calculating how soon after sunset the full moon would get up in the east, and whether the gathering clouds would greatly interfere with her lighting of the little island. With this general hush of the wind, though it still indulged in occasional brief gusts, the river seemed to me to grow blacker, the willows to stand more densely together. The latter, too, kept up a sort of independent movement of their own, rustling among themselves when no wind stirred, and shaking oddly from the roots upwards. When common objects in this way become charged with the suggestion of horror, they stimulate the imagination far more than things of unusual appearance, and these bushes, crowding, huddled about us, assumed for me in the darkness a bizarre grotesquerie of appearance that lent to them somehow the aspect of purposeful and living creatures. Their very ordinariness, I felt, masked what was malignant and hostile to us. The forces of the region drew nearer with the coming of night. They were focusing upon our island, and more particularly upon ourselves, for thus, somehow, in the terms of the imagination, did my really indescribable sensations in this extraordinary place present themselves. I had slept a good deal in the early afternoon, and had thus recovered somewhat from the exhaustion of a disturbed night, but this only served apparently to render me more susceptible than before to the obsessing spell of the haunting. I fought against it, laughing at my feelings as absurd and childish, with very obvious psychological explanations, yet in spite of every effort they gained in strength upon me, so that I dreaded the night as a child lost in a forest must dread the approach of darkness. The canoe we had carefully covered with a waterproof sheet during the day, and the one remaining paddle had been securely tied by the Swede to the base of a tree, lest the wind should rob us of that too. From five o'clock onwards I busied myself with the stew pot and preparations for dinner, it being my turn to cook that night. We had potatoes, onions, bits of bacon fat to add flavor, and a general thick residue from the former stews at the bottom of the pot. With black bread broken up into it, the result was most excellent, and it was followed by a stew of plums with sugar and a brew of strong tea with dried milk. A good pile of wood lay close at hand, and the absence of wind made my duties easy. My companion sat lazily watching me, dividing his attentions between cleaning his pipe and giving useless advice, an admitted privilege of the off-duty man. He had been very quiet all afternoon, engaged in recalking the canoe, strengthening the tent ropes and fishing for driftwood while I slept. No more talk about undesirable things had passed between us, and I think his only remark had to do with the gradual destruction of the island, which he declared was not fully a third smaller than when we first landed. The pot had just begun to bubble when I heard his voice calling to me from the bank, where he had wandered away without my noticing. I ran up, 
Come and listen, he said, and see what you make of it. He held his hand cupwise to his ear, as so often before. Now do you hear anything, he asked, watching me curiously. We stood there listening attentively together. At first I heard only the deep note of the water and the hisses rising from its turbulent surface. The willows for once were motionless and silent. Then a sound began to reach my ears, faintly, a peculiar sound, something like the humming of a distant gong. It seemed to come across to us in the darkness from the waste of swamps and willows opposite. It was repeated at regular intervals, but it was certainly neither the sound of a bell nor the hooting of a distant steamer. I can liken it to nothing so much as the sound of an immense gong suspended far up in the sky, repeating incessantly its muffled metallic note, soft and musical, as it was repeatedly struck. My heart quickened as I listened. "'I've heard it all day,' said my companion. "'While you slept this afternoon, it came all round the island. I hunted it down but could never get near enough to see, to localize it correctly. Sometimes it was overhead, and sometimes it seemed under the water.' Once or twice, too, I could have sworn it was not outside at all, but within myself, you know, the way a sound in the fourth dimension is supposed to come. I was too much puzzled to pay much attention to his words. I listened carefully, striving to associate it with any known familiar sound I could think of, but without success. It changed in the direction, too, coming nearer, and then sinking utterly away into remote distance. I cannot say that it was ominous in quality, because to me it seemed distinctly musical— Yet I must admit it set going a distressing feeling that made me wish I had never heard it. The wind blowing in those sand funnels, I said, determined to find an explanation, or the bushes rubbing together after the storm, perhaps. It comes off the whole swamp, my friend answered. It comes from everywhere at once, he ignored my explanations. It comes from the willow bushes somehow. But now the wind has dropped, I objected. The willows can hardly make a noise by themselves, can they? His answer frightened me, first because I had dreaded it, and secondly because I knew intuitively it was true. It is because the wind has dropped we now hear it. It was drowned before. It is the cry, I believe, of the... I dashed back to my fire, warned by the sound of bubbling that the stew was in danger, but determined at the same time to escape further conversation. I was resolute, if possible, to avoid the exchanging of views... I dreaded, too, that he would begin about the gods or the elemental forces or something else disquieting, and I wanted to keep myself well in hand for what might happen later. There was another night to be faced before we escaped from this distressing place, and there was no knowing yet what it might bring forth. "'Come and cut up bread for the pot,' I called to him, vigorously stirring the appetizing mixture. That stew pot held sanity for us both, and the thought made me laugh.' He came over slowly and took the provision sack from the tree, fumbling in its mysterious depths, and then emptying the entire contents upon the ground sheet at his feet. "'Hurry up!' I cried. "'It's boiling!' The Swede burst out in a roar of laughter that startled me. It was forced laughter, not artificial exactly, but mirthless. "'There's nothing here!' he shouted, holding his sides. "'Bread, I mean.' "'It's gone. There's no bread. They've taken it.' I dropped a long spoon and ran up. Everything the sack had contained lay upon the ground sheet, but there was no loaf. The whole dead weight of my growing fear fell upon me and shook me. Then I burst out laughing, too. It was the only thing to do, and the sound of my laughter also made me understand his. The stain of psychical pressure caused it, this explosion of an unnatural laughter in both of us. It was an effort of repressed forces to seek relief. 
It was a temporary safety valve, and with both of us, it ceased quite suddenly. How criminally stupid of me, I cried, still determined to be consistent and find an explanation. I clean forgot to buy a loaf at Presburg. That chattering woman put everything out of my head, and I must have left it lying on the counter, or... The oatmeal, too, is much less than it was this morning, the Swede interrupted. Why in the world need he draw attention to it, I thought angrily. There's enough for tomorrow, I said, stirring vigorously, and we can get lots more at Comorn or Gran. In twenty-four hours we shall be miles from here. I hope so. To God, he muttered, putting the things back into the sack. Unless we're claimed first as victims for the sacrifice, he added with a foolish laugh. He dragged the sack to, into the tent for safety's sake, I suppose, and I heard him mumbling to himself, but so indistinctly that it seemed quite natural for me to ignore his words. Our meal was beyond question a gloomy one, and we ate it almost in silence, avoiding one another's eyes and keeping the fire bright. Then we washed up and prepared for the night, and once smoking, our minds unoccupied with any definite duties, the apprehension I had felt all day long became more and more acute. It was not then active fear, I think, but the very vagueness of its origin distressed me far more than if I had been able to ticket and face it squarely. The curious sound I have likened to the note of a gong became now almost incessant and filled the stillness of the night with a faint continuous ringing rather than a series of distinct notes. At one time it was behind and at another time in front of us. Sometimes I fancied it came from the bushes on our left and then again from the clumps on our right. More often it hovered directly overhead like the whirring of wings. It was really everywhere at once, behind, in front, at our sides, and over our heads, completely surrounding us. The sound really defies description, but nothing within my knowledge is like that ceaseless muffled humming rising off the deserted worlds of swamps and willows. We sat smoking in comparative silence, the strain growing every minute greater. The worst feature of the situation seemed to me that we did not know what to expect and could therefore make no sort of preparation by way of defense. We could anticipate nothing. My explanations made in the sunshine, moreover, now came to haunt me with their foolish and wholly unsatisfactory nature, and it was more and more clear to us that some kind of plain talk with my companion was inevitable, whether I liked it or not. After all, we had to spend the night together and to sleep in the same tent side by side, I saw that I could not get along much longer without the support of his mind, and for that, of course, plain talk was imperative. As long as possible, however, I postponed this little climax and tried to ignore or laugh at the occasional sentences he flung into the emptiness. Some of these sentences, moreover, were confoundedly disquieting to me, coming as they did to corroborate much that I felt myself corroboration, too, which made it so much more convincing from a totally different point of view. He composed such curious sentences and hurled them at me in such an inconsequential sort of way, as though his main line of thought was secret to himself, and these fragments were mere bits he found impossible to digest. He got rid of them by uttering them. Speech relieved him. It was like being sick. There are things about us, I'm sure, that make for disorder, disintegration, destruction, our destruction, he said once while the fire blazed between us. We've strayed out of a safe line somewhere and another time when the gong sounds had come nearer, ringing much louder than before and directly over our heads, he said as though talking to himself, I don't think a gramophone would show any record of that. The sound doesn't come to me by the ears at all. The vibrations reach me in another manner altogether and seem to be within me, 
which is precisely how a fourth-dimensional sound might be supposed to make itself heard. I purposely made no reply to this, but I sat up a little closer to the fire and peered about me into the darkness. The clouds were massed all over the sky, and no trace of moonlight came through. Very still, too, everything was, so that the river and the... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Frogs had things all their own way. It has that about it, he went on, which is utterly out of common experience. It is unknown. Only one thing describes it, really. It is a non-human sound. I mean, a sound outside humanity. Having rid himself of this indigestible morsel, he lay quiet for a time, but he had so admirably expressed my own feeling that it was a relief to have the thought out and to have confined it by the limitation of words from dangerous wanderings to and fro in the mind. The solitude of that Danube camping place, can I ever forget it? The feeling of being utterly alone on an empty planet. My thoughts ran incessantly upon cities and the haunts of men. I would have given my soul, as the saying is, for the feel of those Bavarian villages we had passed through by the score, for the normal human commonplaces, peasants drinking beer, tables beneath the trees, hot sunshine, and a ruined castle on the rocks behind the red-roofed church. Even the tourist would have been welcome. Yet what I felt of dread was no ordinarily ghostly fear. It was infinitely greater, stranger, and it seemed to arise from some dim ancestral sense of terror more profoundly disturbing than anything I had known or dreamed of. We had strayed, as the Swede put it, into some region or some set of conditions where the risks were great yet unintelligible to us, where the frontiers of some unknown world lay close to us. It was a spot held by the dwellers in some outer space, a sort of peephole whence they could spy upon the earth themselves unseen, a point where the veil between had worn a little thin. As the final result of too long a sojourn here, we should be carried over the border and deprived of what we called our lives, yet by mental, not physical, processes. In that sense, as he said, we should be the victims of our adventure, a sacrifice. It took us in different fashion, each according to the measure of his sensitiveness and powers of resistance. I translate it vaguely into a personification of the mightily disturbed elements, 
investing them with a horror of a deliberate and malefic purpose, resentful of our audacious intrusion into their breeding place, whereas my friend threw it into the unoriginal form, at first of a trespass on some ancient shrine, some place where the old god still held sway, where the emotional forces of former worshippers still clung, and the ancestral portion of him yielded to the old pagan spell. At any rate, here was a place unpolluted by men, kept clean by the winds from coarsening human influences, a place where spiritual agencies were within reach and aggressive. Never before or since have I been so attacked by indescribable suggestion of a beyond region, of another scheme of life, another revolution not parallel to the human, and in the end our minds would succumb under the weight of the awful spell, and we should be drawn across a frontier into their world. Small things testified to the amazing influence of the place, and now, in the silence, round the fire they allowed themselves to be noted by the mind. The very atmosphere had proved itself a magnifying medium to distort every indication. The otter rolling in the current, the hurrying boatman making signs, the shifting willows, one and all had been robbed of its natural character, and revealed in something of its other aspect as it existed across the border to that other region. And this changed aspect I felt now, not merely to me, but to the race. The whole experience whose verge we touched was unknown to humanity at all. It was a new order of experience, and in the true sense of the word, unearthly. It's the deliberate calculating purpose that reduces one's courage to zero, the Swede said suddenly, as if he had been actually following my thoughts. Otherwise, imagination might count for much, but the paddle, the canoe, the lessening food... "'Haven't I explained all that once?' I interrupted viciously. "'You have,' he answered dryly. "'You have indeed.' He made other remarks, too, as usual, about what he called the plain determination to provide a victim. But having now arranged my thoughts better, I recognized that this was simply the cry of his frightened soul against the knowledge that he was being attacked in a vital part, and that he would be somehow taken or destroyed.' The situation called for a courage and calmness of reasoning that neither of us could compass, and I have never before been so clearly conscious of two persons in me, the one that explained everything and the other that laughed at such foolish explanations, yet was horribly afraid. Meanwhile, in the pitchy night, the fire died down and the woodpile grew small. Neither of us moved to replenish the stock, and the darkness consequently came up very close to our faces. A few feet beyond the circle of firelight, it was inky black. Occasionally a stray puff of wind set the willows shivering about us, but apart from this not very welcome sound, a deep and depressing silence reigned, broken only by the gurgling of the river and the humming in the air overhead. We both missed, I think, the shouting company of the winds. At length, at a moment when a stray puff prolonged itself as though the wind were about to rise again, I reached the point, for me, of saturation, the point where it was absolutely necessary to find relief in plain speech, or else to betray myself by some hysterical extravagance that must have been far worse in its effect upon both of us. I kicked the fire into a blaze and turned to my companion abruptly. He looked up with a start. "'I can't disguise it any longer,' I said. "'I don't like this place and the darkness and the noises and the awful feelings I get. There's something here that beats me utterly.' I am in blue funk, and that's the plain truth. If the other shore was different, I swear I'd be inclined to swim for it. The Swede's face turned very white beneath the deep tan of sun and wind. He stared straight at me and answered quietly, but his voice betrayed his huge excitement by its unnatural calmness. 
For the moment, at any rate, he was the strong man of the two. He was more phlegmatic, for one thing. It's not a physical condition we can escape from by running away, he replied, in the tone of a doctor diagnosing some grave disease. We must sit tight and wait. There are forces close here that could kill a herd of elephants in a second as easily as you or I could squash a fly. Our only chance is to keep perfectly still. Our insignificance, perhaps, may save us. I put a dozen questions into my expression of face, but found no words. It was precisely like listening to an accurate description of a disease whose symptoms had puzzled me. I mean that so far, although aware of our disturbing presence, they have not found us, not located us, as the Americans say, he went on. They're blundering about like men hunting for a leak of gas. The paddle and canoe and provisions prove that. I think they feel us but cannot actually see us. We must keep our minds quiet. It's our minds they feel. We must control our thoughts, or it's all up with us. Death, you mean? I stammered, icy, with the horror of his suggestion. Worse, by far, he said. Death, according to one's belief, means either annihilation or release from the limitation of the senses, but it involves no change of character. You don't suddenly alter just because the body's gone. But this means a radical alteration, a complete change, a horrible loss of one's self by substitution, far worse than death and not even annihilation. We happen to have camped in a spot where their region touches ours, where the veil between was worn thin. Whores, he was using my very own phrase, my actual words, so that they are aware of our being in their neighborhood. But who are aware? I asked. I forgot the shaking of the willows in the windless calm, the humming overhead, everything except that I was waiting for an answer that I dreaded more than I could possibly explain. He lowered his voice at once to reply, leaning forward a little over the fire, an indefinable change in his face that made me avoid his eyes and look down upon the ground. All my life, he said, I have been strangely, vividly conscious of another region, not far removed from our own world in one sense, yet wholly different in kind, where great things go on unceasingly, where immense and terrible personalities hurry by, intent on vast purposes compared to which earthly affairs, the rise and fall of nations, the destinies of empires, the fate of armies and continents, are all as dust in the balance, vast purposes, I mean, that deal directly with the soul, and not indirectly with more expressions of the soul. I suggest just now, I began, seeking to stop him, feeling as though I was face to face with a madman, but he instantly overbore me with his torrent that had come. You think, he said, it is the spirit of the elements, and I thought perhaps it was the old gods, but I tell you now, it is neither. They would be comprehensible entities, for they have relations with men depending upon them for worship or sacrifice, whereas these beings who are now about us have absolutely nothing to do with mankind, and it is mere chance that their space happens just at this point to touch our own. The mere conception, which his words somehow made so convincing as I listened to them there in the dark stillness of that lonely island, set me shaking a little all over. I found it impossible to control my movements. And what do you propose? I began again. A sacrifice. A victim might save us by distracting them until we could get away, he went on. 
just as the wolves stop to devour the dogs and give the sleigh another start. But I see no chance of any other victim now. I stared blankly at him. The gleam in his eye was dreadful. Presently, he continued, It's the willows, of course. The willows mask the others, but the others are feeling about for us. If we let our minds betray our fear, we're lost, lost utterly. He looked at me with an expression so calm, so determined, so sincere, that I no longer had any doubts as to his sanity. He was as sane as any man ever was. If we can hold out through the night, he added, we may get off in the daylight unnoticed, or rather, undiscovered. But you think a sacrifice would? That gong-like humming came down very close over our heads as I spoke, but it was my friend's scared face that really stopped my mouth. Hush, he whispered, holding up his hand. Do not mention them more than you can help. Do not refer to them by name. To name is to reveal. It is the inevitable clue, and our only hope lies in ignoring them, in order that they may ignore us. Even in thought? He was extraordinarily agitated. Especially in thought. Our thoughts make spirals in their world. We must keep them out of our minds at all cost if possible. I rake the fire together to prevent the darkness having everything its own way. I never longed for the sun as I longed for it then in the awful blackness of that summer night. Were you awake all last night? He went on suddenly. I slept badly a little after dawn, I replied evasively, trying to follow his instructions, which I knew instinctively were true. But the wind, of course. I know, but the wind won't account for all the noises. Then you heard it too? The multiplying countless little footsteps I heard, he said, adding, after a moment's hesitation, and that other sound. You mean above the tent and the pressing down upon us of something tremendous, gigantic? He nodded significantly. It was like the beginning of a sort of inner suffocation, I said. Partly, yes. It seemed to me that the weight of the atmosphere had been altered, had increased enormously so that we should have been crushed. And that, I went on, determined to have it all out, pointing upwards, where the gong-like note hummed ceaselessly, rising and falling like wind. What do you make of that? It's their sound, he whispered gravely. It's the sound of their world, the humming in their region. The diversion here is so thin that it leaks through somehow. But if you listen carefully, you'll find it's not above so much as around us. It's in the willows. It's the willows themselves humming, because here the willows have been made symbols of the forces that are against us. I could not follow exactly what he meant by this. Yet the thought and idea in my mind were beyond question the thought and idea in his. I realized what he realized, only with less power of analysis than his. It was on the tip of my tongue to tell him at last about my hallucination of the ascending figures and the moving bushes, when he suddenly thrust his face again close to mine across the firelight and began to speak in a very earnest whisper. He amazed me by his calmness and pluck, his apparent control of the situation, this man I had known for years, deemed unimaginative, stolid. Now listen, he said. The only thing for us to do is to go on as though nothing had happened, follow our usual habits, go to bed, and so forth. Pretend we feel nothing and notice nothing. It is a question wholly of the mind, and the less we think about them, the better our chance of escape. Above all, don't think for what you think happens. All right, I'll try, but tell me one more thing first. 
Tell me what you make of those hollows in the ground all about us, those sand funnels. No, he cried, forgetting to whisper in his excitement. I dare not, simply dare not put the thoughts into words. If you have not guessed, I am glad. Don't try to. They have put it into my mind. Try your hardest to prevent their putting it into yours. He sank his voice again to a whisper before he finished, and I did not press him to explain. There was already just about as much horror in me as I could hold. The conversation came to an end, and we smoked our pipes busily in silence. Then something happened, something unimportant, apparently, as the way is when the nerves are in a very great state of tension, and the small thing for a brief space gave me an entirely different point of view. I chanced to look down at my sand shoe, the sort we used for the canoe, and something to do with the hole at the toe suddenly recalled to me the London shop where I had bought them, the difficulty the man had in fitting me, and other details of the uninteresting but practical operation. At once, in its train, followed a wholesome view of the modern skeptical world. I was accustomed to move in at home. I thought of roast beef and ale, motor cars, policemen, brass bands, and a dozen other things that proclaimed the soul of ordinariness or utility. The effect was immediate and astonishing even to myself. Psychologically, I suppose it was simply a sudden and violent reaction after the strain of living in an atmosphere of things that to the normal consciousness must seem impossible and incredible. But, whatever the cause, it momentarily lifted the spell from my heart and left me for the short space of a minute feeling free and utterly unafraid. I looked up at my friend opposite. "'You damned old pagan!' I cried, laughing aloud in his face. "'You imaginative idiot! You superstitious idolater! You—' I stopped in the middle, seized anew by the old horror. I tried to smother the sound of my voice as something sacrilegious. The Swede, of course, heard it too. The strange cry overhead in the darkness, and that sudden drop in the air as though something had come nearer. He had turned ashen white under the tan— he stood bolt upright in front of the fire, stiff as a rod, staring at me. After that, he said in a sort of helpless, frantic way, we must go. We can't stay now. We must straight camp this very instant and go on down the river. He was talking, I saw, quite wildly, his words dictated by abject terror, the terror he had resisted so long, but which had caught him at last. In the dark, I exclaimed, shaking with fear after my hysterical outburst, but still realizing our position better than he did. Sheer madness, the river's in flood, and we've only got a single paddle. Besides, we only go deeper into their country. There's nothing ahead for fifty miles but willows, willows, willows. He sat down again in a state of semi-collapse. The positions by one of those kaleidoscopic changes nature loves were suddenly reversed, and the control of our forces passed over into my hands. His mind at last had reached the point where it was beginning to weaken. What on earth possessed you to do such a thing? He whispered with the awe of genuine terror in his voice and face. I crossed round to his side of the fire. I took both his hands in mine, kneeling down beside him and looking straight into his frightened eyes. We'll make one more blaze, I said firmly, and then turn in for the night. At sunrise we'll be off full speed for Camorn. Now pull yourself together a bit and remember your own advice about not thinking fear. He said no more. I saw that he would agree and obey. In some measure, too, it was a sort of relief to get up and make an excursion into the darkness for more wood. We kept close together, almost touching, groping among the bushes and along the bank. The humming overhead never ceased, but seemed to me to grow louder as we increased our distance from the fire. It was shivery work. 
We were grubbing away in the middle of a thickish clump of willows where some driftwood from a former flood had caught high among the branches. When my body was seized in a grip that made me half drop upon the sand, it was the Swede. He had fallen against me and was clutching me for support. I heard his breath coming and going in short gasps. Look by my soul, he whispered, and for the first time in my experience I knew what it was to hear tears of terror in a human voice. He was pointing to the fire some fifty feet away. I followed the direction of his finger, and I swear my heart missed a beat. There, in front of the dim glow, something was moving. I saw it through a veil that hung before my eyes like the gauze drop curtain used at the back of a theater, hazily a little. It was neither a human figure nor an animal. To me, it gave the strange impression of being as large as several animals grouped together, like horses, two or three, moving slowly. The Swede, too, got a similar result, though expressing it differently, for he thought it was shaped in size like a clump of willow bushes, rounded at the top and moving all over upon its surface, coiling upon itself like smoke, he said afterwards. I watched it settle downward through the bushes, he sobbed at me. Look, by God, it's coming this way. Oh, oh, he gave a kind of whistling cry. They found us. I gave one terrified glance, which just enabled me to see that the shadowy form was swinging towards us through the bushes, and then I collapsed backwards with a crash into the branches. These failed, of course, to support my weight, so that with the Swede on top of me we fell into a struggling heap upon the sand. I really hardly knew what was happening. I was conscious only of a sort of enveloping sensation of icy fear that plucked the nerves out of their fleshly covering, twisted them this way and that, and replaced them quivering. My eyes were tightly shut. Something in my throat choked me, a feeling that my consciousness was expanding, extending out into space, swiftly gave way to another feeling that I was losing it altogether and about to die. An acute spasm of pain passed through me, and I was aware that the Swede had hold of me in such a way that it hurt me abominably. It was the way he caught at me in falling. But it was the pain, he declared afterwards, that saved me. It caused me to forget them and think of something else at the very instant when they were about to find me. It concealed my mind from them at the moment of discovery, yet just in time to evade their terrible seizing of me. He himself, he says, actually swooned at the same moment, and that was what saved him. I only know that at a later date, how long or short is impossible to say, I found myself scrambling up out of the slippery network of willow branches and saw my companion standing in front of me holding out a hand to assist me. I stared at him in a dazed way, rubbing the arm he had twisted for me. Nothing came to me to say, somehow. I lost consciousness for a moment or two, I heard him say. That's what saved me. It made me stop thinking about them. You nearly broke my arm. I said, uttering my only connected thought at that moment. A numbness came over me. That's what saved you, he replied. Between us, we've managed to set them off on a false tack somewhere. The humming has ceased. It's gone, for the moment, at any rate. A wave of hysterical laughter seized me again, and this time spread to my friend, too. Great healing gusts of shaking laughter that brought a tremendous sense of relief in their train. We made our way back to the fire and put the wood on so that it blazed at once. Then we saw that the tent had fallen over and lay in a tangled heap upon the ground. We picked it up, and during the process tripped more than once and caught our feet in sand. "'It's those sand funnels!' exclaimed the Swede when the tent was up again and the firelight lit up the ground for several yards about us. "'And look at the size of them!' All around the tent and about the fireplace where we had seen the moving shadows 
There were deep funnel-shaped hollows in the sand, exactly similar to the ones we had already found over the island, only far bigger and deeper, beautifully formed and wide enough in some instances to admit the whole of my foot and leg. Neither of us said a word. We both knew that sleep was the safest thing we could do, and to bed we went accordingly without further delay, having first thrown sand on the fire and taken the provision sack and the paddle inside the tent with us. The canoe, too, we propped in such a way at the end of the tent that our feet touched it, and the least motion would disturb and wake us. In case of emergency, too, we again went to bed in our clothes, ready for a sudden start. It was my firm intention to lie awake all night and watch, but the exhaustion of nerves and body decreed otherwise, and sleep after a while came over me with a welcome blanket of oblivion. The fact that my companion also slept quickened its approach. At first he fidgeted and constantly sat up, asking me if I heard this or heard that. He tossed about on his cork mattress and said the tent was moving and the river had risen over the point of the island, but each time I went out to look and returned with the report that all was well, and finally he grew calmer and lay still. Then, at length, his breathing became regular and I heard unmistakable sounds of snoring, the first and only time in my life when snoring had been a welcome and calming influence. This, I remember, was the last thought in my mind before dozing off. A difficulty in breathing woke me, and I found the blanket over my face. But something else besides the blanket was pressing upon me, and my first thought was that my companion had rolled off his mattress onto my own in his sleep. I called to him and sat up, and at the same moment it came to me that the tent was surrounded. That sound of multitudinous soft pattering was again audible outside, filled the night with horror. I called again to him louder than before. He did not answer, but I missed the sound of his snoring and also noticed that the flap of the tent was down. This was an unpardonable sin. I crawled out into the darkness to hook it back securely, and it was then for the first time I realized positively that the Swede was not here. He had gone. I dashed out in a mad run, seized by a dreadful agitation, and the moment I was out I plunged into a sort of torrent humming that surrounded me completely and came out of every quarter of the heavens at once. It was that same familiar humming, gone mad. A swarm of great invisible bees might have been about me in the air. The sound seemed to thicken the very atmosphere, and I felt that my lungs worked with difficulty. But my friend was in danger, and I could not hesitate. The dawn was just about to break, and a faint whitish light spread upwards over the clouds from a thin strip of clear horizon. No wind stirred. I could just make out the bushes and river beyond and the pale, sandy patches. In my excitement, I ran frantically to and fro about the island, calling him by name, shouting at the top of my voice the first words that came to my head. But the willows smothered my voice, and the humming muffled it so that the sound only traveled a few feet round me. I plunged among the bushes, tripping headlong, tumbling over roots and scraping my face as I tore this way and that among the preventing branches. Then, quite unexpectedly, I came out upon the island's point and saw a dark figure outlined between the water and the sky. It was the Swede, and already he had one foot in the river. A moment more and he would have taken the plunge. I threw myself upon him, flinging my arms about his waist and dragging him shorewards with all my strength. Of course he struggled furiously, making a noise all that time, just like the cursed humming, and using the most outlandish phrases in his anger about going inside to them, and taking the way of the water and the wind, and God only knows what more besides, that I tried in vain to recall afterwards, but which turned me sick with horror and amazement as I listened. But in the end I managed to get him into the comparative safety of the tent, and flung him breathless and cursing upon the mattress, 
where I held him until the fit had passed. I think the suddenness with which it all went and he grew calm, coinciding as it did with the equally abrupt cessation of the humming and pattering outside. I think this was almost the strangest part of the whole business, perhaps, for he had just opened his eyes and turned his tired face up to me so that the dawn threw a pale light upon it through the doorway and said for all the world just like a frightened child, My life, old man, it's my life I owe you, but it's all over now anyhow. They found a victim in our place. Then he dropped back upon his blankets and went to sleep literally under my eyes. He simply collapsed and began to snore again as healthily as though nothing had happened and he had never tried to offer his life as a sacrifice by drowning. And when the sunlight woke him three hours later, hours of ceaseless vigil for me, it became so clear to me that he remembered absolutely nothing of what he had attempted to do that I deemed it wise to hold my peace and ask no dangerous questions. He woke naturally and easily, as I have said, when the sun was already high in a windless hot sky, and he at once got up and set about the preparations of the fire for breakfast. I followed him anxiously at bathing, but he did not attempt to plunge in, merely dipping his head and making some remark about the extra coldness of the water. "'River's falling at last,' he said, and I am glad of it. "'The humming has stopped too,' I said. He looked up at me quietly with his normal expression. Evidently, he remembered everything except his own attempt at suicide. "'Everything has stopped,' he said, because—' He hesitated, but I knew some reference to that remark he had made just before he fainted was in his mind, and I was determined to know it. "'Because they found another victim?' I said, forcing a little laugh. "'Exactly,' he answered. "'Exactly. I feel as positive of it as though—' "'As though I feel quite safe again, I mean,' he finished." He began to look curiously about him. The sunlight lay in hot patches on the sand. There was no wind. The willows were motionless. He slowly rose to feet. Come, he said. I think if we look, we shall find it. He started off on a run, and I followed him. He kept to the banks, poking with a stick among the sandy bays and caves and little backwaters, myself always close on his heels. Ah, he exclaimed presently, ah! The tone of his voice somehow brought back to me a vivid sense of the horror of the last twenty-four hours, and I hurried up to join him. He was pointing with his stick at a large black object that lay half in the water and half on the sand. It appeared to be caught by some twisted willow root so that the river could not sweep it away. A few hours before, the spot must have been underwater. See, he said quietly, the victim that made our escape possible. And when I peered across his shoulder, I saw that his stick rested on the body of a man. He turned it over. It was the corpse of a peasant, and the face was hidden in the sand. Clearly, the man had been drowned, but a few hours before, and his body must have been swept down upon our island, somewhere about the hour of dawn, at the very time the fit had passed. We must give it a decent burial, you know. I suppose so, I replied. I shuddered a little in spite of myself, for there was something about the appearance of that poor drowned man that turned me cold. The Swede glanced up sharply at me, an undecipherable expression on his face, and began clambering down the bank. I followed him more leisurely. The current, I noticed, had torn away much of the clothing from the body so that the neck and part of the chest lay bare. Halfway down the bank my companion suddenly stopped and held up his hand in warning, but either my foot slipped or I had gained too much momentum to bring myself quickly to a halt, for I bumped into him and sent him forward with a sort of leap to save himself. We tumbled together onto the hard sand so that our feet splashed into the water, 
and before anything could be done, we had collided a little heavily against the corpse. The Swede uttered a sharp cry, and I sprang back as if I had been shot. At the moment we touched the body, there rose from its surface the loud sound of humming, the sound of several hummings, which passed with a vast commotion as of winged things in the air about us and disappeared upwards into the sky, growing fainter and fainter till they finally ceased in the distance. It was exactly as though we had disturbed some living yet invisible creatures at work. My companion clutched me, and I think I clutched him, but before either of us had time properly to recover from the unexpected shock, we saw that a movement in the current was turning the corpse round so that it became released from the grip of the willow roots. A moment later it had turned completely over, the dead face uppermost staring at the sky. It lay on the edge of the main stream, and another moment it would be swept away. The Swede started to save it, shouting again something I did not catch about a proper burial, and then abruptly dropped upon his knees on the sand and covered his eyes with his hands. I was beside him in an instant. I saw what he had seen, for just as the body swung round to the current, the face and the exposed chest turned full towards us and showed plainly how the skin and flesh were indented with small hollows, beautifully formed and exactly similar in shape and kind to the sand funnels that we had found all over the island. Their mark, I heard my companion mutter under his breath, their awful mark. And when I turned my eyes again from his ghastly face to the river, the current had done its work and the body had been swept away into midstream and was already beyond our reach and almost out of sight, turning over and over on the waves like an otter. It is said that The Willows was H.P. Lovecraft's favorite weird tale. Of it, Lovecraft wrote in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, Here, art and restraint and narrative reach their very highest development, and an impression of lasting poignancy is produced without a single strained passage or a single false note. Well, as much as Lovecraft enjoyed Blackwood, Blackwood was famously not that impressed with Mr. Lovecraft. The Willows first appeared in November of 1907 in Blackwood's collection The Listener and Other Stories. In a strange way, it is a tale like a haunted house tale or, say, say the film Alien, a story of contained horror— Characters at first held someplace in abeyance and then cannot escape. Our characters at first are held in their canoe, then become trapped on the island, trapped as certainly as those contained in a haunted house of a dark and stormy night or in a spaceship in the alien deeps. So much of the effectiveness of the willows is in the gathering of detail detail of character, of the river and the island, of the willows on the island. Natural detail is given 
without a strained effort, and then is skewed into the realm of the dark, the weird. It is a great story and great storytelling. Algernon Blackwood, who lived from 1869 to 1951, was a man who enjoyed, explored, and lived in the natural world. An outdoorsman, a mountain climber, hunter, boatsman, the worlds he crafted in his stories, such as this one, and in his other touchstone tale, The Wendigo, derive from personal experience and owe their chilling effect to excellent, succinct writing, writing from experience. He gives us a feeling of being there, and there begins the horror, as a growing fear which emerges from the natural world and then overwhelms it. In our frequently overheated world of 21st century horror writing and cinema, Blackwood can be a hard sell. He doesn't give us blood and gore and guts. He doesn't give us mass zombies or vengeful spirits. He insinuates, provides shades, and builds the frights inside us rather than just jumping out to say boo. Blackwood never married, and according to his friends, he was a loner, but always was cheerful company. And when he wasn't, as someone has said, steeping himself in occultism, Rosicrucianism, and Buddhism, he was likely to be skiing or climbing mountains. To satisfy his interest in the supernatural, Blackwood joined an organization called The Ghost Club, founded in London in 1862. It still exists and is perhaps the oldest paranormal research group in the world. I recommend you stop by Wikipedia and read a bit about the club. Also, along with his contemporary Arthur Machen, Blackwood was a member of one of the factions of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And that is another Wikipedia-worthy look. Both parts of the Willas were read to us by Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick. To recap, Stephen read Ori Hagri's It's Just Tearing Me Apart in show 69, and Joe McKinney's Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens during this year's Bram Stoker shows. He lives in central Virginia, has a culinary arts degree, and is an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, and board games. His day job is in information technology. To relax, he hikes Virginia's Old Rag Mountain, and for relaxation, he recently began volunteering in prisons. You can find him online at www.stephenski.com. I'll post that on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Thanks again, Stephen, for taking us on this journey down the Danube. And by the way, the eerie, sibilant musical intro and outro to The Willows is from Alexandra Deplas's wonderful, evocative score, to Terence Malick's wonderful, evocative film, The Tree of Life, a score and a film I highly recommend. And that, as we say, is that. Next week? <laughs> Something utterly different. But for now, night awaits you, and I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper, 
and prepared for an easy homewards walk in a gentle darkness. For July, low temperatures, some mug but no rain. So, bid Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, adieu at the door. Enjoy your amble among the whispering trees and prairie grass-planted parkways of Roscoe Street and Buckingham Place. Ignore the night's overhanging sickle moon and focus on home and familiarity and the security of the bed with its ever-promised pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.